Some of your earliest memories, if you can think back that far, and, and, and you perhaps if you talk to senior folks in their sunset years, they might not remember where they put the, the fork or the car keys, but many of us remember our earliest memories are of when we become self-aware. Our earliest memories of when we first realised, I exist, I'm here, and, and, and perhaps you can remember back to those days. I know when we talk about things becoming self-aware these days, we get a bit worried. You know, if the vacuum cleaner becomes self-aware or technology becomes self-aware, a bit worried about that. But, but self-awareness in humans particularly, in image bearers, is something that is wired into us. And part of that wiring that we'll see this morning and next week and the weeks to come is that question that humans have that other creatures don't have is why? Why do I exist? Have you ever watched a baby become self-aware? I mean, we've got a few here this morning, perhaps over morning tea, we can grab some coffee and just, just look at children. When children start becoming self-aware of their existence, they start doing things like they look at their hand and they go, oh, I've got this, this thing and it's attached to me and they start going cross-eyed as they look at this thing and eventually it leads to putting their hand in their mouth. And all sorts of things they do with their hands, goes in their nose, and all sorts of places, they're discovering their existence. And that doesn't end for us in many ways, it continues. Doesn't matter whether you're a baby, a toddler, a teenager, you're 80 or 90, we're all asking that question deep down, why though? Not just, I exist, but why do I exist? Why am I here? What's it all for? The reading of scripture that we've just read has been read throughout the centuries as a great encouragement to people, as a great explanation, clear God's purposes in showing us why we exist. The retelling of God's word to his people, the re-showing of his glory to us is something that we need in our world and all the more today. But friends, as we read Genesis 1, there is the elephant in the room, there is the question, there is the discussion, there is the debate, because many people, including Christians, are often not encouraged by reading Genesis 1. Some of us are a bit embarrassed, some of us are a bit confused or ashamed even, we get uneasy about saying anything for certain that we see in Genesis 1. I've got a little preface this morning, and if, you, if you're a regular at Reforming Church, prefaces can be, you know, wow, this could be not a little preface, but here's a little preface, it is little. As we come to this series, and particularly to this chapter of the Bible, and next week to chapter 2, and the week after chapter 3, here's my preface. I have friends who don't hold to a literal six-day creation. I have friends who read Genesis in this part differently to Genesis 12 and following. I have friends that see it as, well, Genesis 1 to 11 is a prehistory and Genesis 12 and following is, is actual history perhaps a myth history and real history. I have friends that would argue all those things. And being in this kind of role for about 20 years now and through two theological colleges, I've had a lot of discussion with those friends. 
I want to say up front, I don't agree with my friends. And it's not just me. So, cards on the table, I think the way we understand Genesis 1 is the way it is written. And I want to show you, my friends, even if you disagree, I want to show you, I want to show you from the Scriptures. Now, you can go to other places. Of course, people will talk about science and we'll talk about history of interpretation. Let's just talk about history of interpretation to start with. There's a whole lot of scholarship that's happened around Genesis 1. Old Testament scholar, and he happens to be a friend of mine, his name is Jonathan Gibson, he now works, he serves as a lecturer of Old Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary in the US. He's from Northern Ireland originally, he's good crack, he's good fun. He's also an excellent scholar. And Johnny Gibson says this about the history of interpretation of Genesis 1. He says, if you want to go back and look at the church fathers, the church fathers, with the only exceptions of Augustine, who is a little bit confused and doesn't agree with himself over three commentaries, Origen and Anselm, everyone holds to Genesis 1 being ordinary days. Then there's the Reformation. We're called Reforming Church. We love the Reformation. All the Reformers, without exception, all of them hold to this being a literal six ordinary days of creation. Then something happens at the Enlightenment. Something happens at the Enlightenment and there's a proliferation of different interpretations. And so the question of uh, not being ordinary days or not, that one, that comes up at the Enlightenment period. It's a relatively new idea, friends. And I love Johnny Gibson's question is this. So did God allow the church to be in the dark for 1,800 years as as to the true meaning of the first chapter of the Bible? But even if we put aside the historical interpretation, as Jonathan Gibson, Hebrew scholar, points out, the text, the exegesis of the text, is the one that's the clincher. It's the text. Let me just briefly go through this, and I know I said that word briefly a lot. Forgive me. But let me just point out a few things. Genesis 1 is not, as my friends would argue, it's not Hebrew poetry. So some evangelicals have argued, oh, it's poetic. It's actually not. If you you just even, you don't have to be a Hebrew scholar. Look at Hebrew poetry in the Psalms. Hebrew poetry has parallelism. So it says a line, and then it'll say the same thing in different ways, second line. This is not poetry. At best, if you want to talk about different genre, it's a highly stylized prose. But it is prose. It's not poetry. Now, I refer you to go and look up Johnny Gibson, go and look at his lectures, they're excellent. And he'll start talking about Hebrew. He'll start talking about Vaviktol vowels and all that sort of thing. And you go, what is he talking about? But just the point is, it's actually a it's a book of prose, it's not poetry, which some have argued it's prose. Secondly, Verse 1 is the absolute beginning of history. And how does Jesus, how does Jesus, how do the apostles look at Genesis 1? Ever read Jesus on Genesis 1? He doesn't understand it as poetry. Jesus himself, the apostles, understand it as this is how it happened. They understand it as historical prose. 
creation of the world, Matthew, John, Second Peter, male and female in marriage, Matthew 19, the work of the devil as a liar, John chapter 8. Then we see in Genesis 1 to 2, 3, this is why Chris read into 2, 3, because that's where the, that particular first big episode finishes in chapter 2, verse 3. We see six consecutive days climaxing on the seventh. And notice this, on those six days and into the seventh, there's no breaks. There's no breaks. No breaks of big periods. We saw in the kids' talk by the Gospel Project, there's evening and morning, the second day, the third day, the fourth day. Also, interestingly, Psalm 104 follows this to the day. Psalm 104 follows Genesis 1. The days of Genesis 1 are best read as ordinary days. You have to ask, if they're not, where all of a sudden does that become into being in Genesis or in the Bible? We see ordinary days, not just symbols. Scholarship points out, for something to be a symbol, it has to exist as a reality to start with. So you can't have, here's a symbol of a symbol, or here's a symbol of reality, and it has to be a reality that forms a symbol of something. These are ordinary days. This is a reality. Now, what I've just done is just take a whole lot of scholarship, reform scholarship, biblical Hebrew scholarship, just take took all that and went, here's my summary form so we can get into the text of Genesis 1. You might be in disagreement, but like I said, we can be friends. Let's be friends. We say every week at church, friends, we gather here, we are friends. But for the next few minutes, brief minutes, Come to Genesis 1 and let me show you the glorious God who creates this way. And I pray it will be compelling when you see what he's done and who he is. I think Genesis 1, 1 to 11, that is actually the history of the world up to the patriarchs. We're going to be up to that kind of period. And then after that is the history of the world after the patriarchs. The whole book, this is a history of the world. It's called Genesis, which is originally, it's a, it's a Greek word that gives us that name, book of beginnings. In fact, verse 1 originally is kind of that Hebrew title, in the beginning. This is the book of beginnings. It goes right back to the beginning. It's not a book that says, well, there was this beginning, but before that there was another beginning. And this is the beginning from verse 1. This is how God created everything from nothing from verse 1. And it's going to shape our lives. I think sometimes we think, well, let's, you know, let's get to Genesis 2. At least next week we're talking about humanity. We're talking about sexuality. We're talking about all sorts of things that are in our world today, hot topics. Genesis 1, yeah, it's kind of just like the, the kind of creation picture. What's that got to do with my life? Everything. If you understand the God who makes everything, you understand everything about your life, you understand why you exist. And so let's look how God created everything. Verse 1. This book of beginnings speaks from the very first line and it has from the very first verb, action word, the very first action is this. The first verb, the first action of the Bible is this. God created the heavens and the earth. God created. God created everything. 
In our society, first cause matters to us. Um, you know, we, we wonder about that with lots of things. Um, here we see the answer is, how does this exist? God. And here in Genesis 1, God is the main subject of creation. It's not creation itself. God is the subject of this chapter, not the creation. We see the Spirit of God is hovering above the waters. He's personal. He's interacting with his creation. And it's God who says in verse 3, the next thing, let there be light. And God saw that the light was good. And what we see following, which is in your service sheet there in the outline of the sermon, what we see following after God creates everything is in the days we see all realms and rulers. There is not a realm in the universe. There is not a person, a being in the universe that does not exist without God making it. Day one, verse three, the realm of light and darkness. God creates light. He separates light and darkness and he does something special and powerful. He names them. We're going to see this next week in Genesis 2. To be able to name something gives you authority. Parents name their kids. Sometimes parents don't get to do that and grandparents do that. Because grandparents have got the authority in that situation somehow. But you get it, right? When you name something, when a, when a child builds something out of Lego, they say, that's what this thing is. Because they've got the authority, they're the creator. And we see evening and morning the first day and from the first day God's first major realm is light and dark I want you to notice this as God creates the world it's highly ordered we're a Presbyterian church we love things being done decently and in order and the reason is because God loves things done decently and in order we read that in the New Testament but we see right from the beginning God is God of order God is not interested in kind of making this thing of chaos and just seeing what happens out of the soup. No, he, he has order and purpose in everything that he makes. We see day two, the second realm, the realm of water and sky. Again, God speaks, let there be an expanse or a canopy. He separates the waters from the waters. And this pattern of orderly creation is repeated. Evening and morning, there's the mark, there's the measure. The second day, we come to the third day, the realm of land, verses 9 to 13. Again, God speaks. And here we see how the third realm of land is created. Verse 10, God does the naming again. He calls the dry land earth. He gathers waters above into one place and he calls them seas and he sees it's good. Verse 11, then with the dry land, he speaks vegetation into being of all different kinds, and God sees this is good. Notice how God creates. He speaks. Um, Johnny, who I was talking about earlier, was a friend from Bible College. Another friend from Bible College, also from Northern Ireland. Maybe I've got a lot of Irish friends. Pete. Uh, Pete's a good friend of mine. He's a New Testament scholar. And Pete often would, he'd get us to babysit his kids. So, like, if they're on holidays, we give them a date night. So, Amy and I, we're babysitting their kids, and Pete and Emma go out on a date. There is, in the room, four boys. Anyone know what four boys are like? They kind of tease each other. Four boys. I think there was a three-year-old, a seven-year-old, a nine-year-old, and a 12-year-old. 
The 12, 9 and 7-year-olds said, hey, Amy and Russ, watch this. Because the 3-year-olds struggled with a tongue tie, they wanted to tease him. That's watch this. They wanted him to say a certain word. They wanted him to use an S word and then make fun of it. So watch this. Hey, Daniel, they said to their 3-year-old brother, how did God make the world? He's 3 years old. Daniel says, he spoke it. They laughed. I thought it was so funny. I thought it was a bit sad, they were teasing their brother, but he didn't mind. But that's not what struck out at Amy and I, gobsmacked as we were. We were looking at a three-year-old. A three-year-old understands the doctrine of creation. A three-year-old understands that God made everything because he spoke it. Day four. The rulers of light and darkness. Again, God speaks. And here we see it goes back to the realm of light and dark, night and day, and God creates rulers for this realm. Uh, Verse 16, look at this. This is fascinating. Why did God make the sun? We think to give light. Why did God make the stars and the moon? Oh, give light. And yes, that's true. That's not the primary reason the sun, moon and stars is made. Have a look at verse 16. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Do you notice this? God makes these things to mark time. Did you see? To mark time. He makes those things for signs and seasons, for days and years. It's no accident that sailors discovered how to navigate and how to understand time by the things in the heavenly bodies because God made it for that. It's orderly and it's beautiful. And God sees it as good. Day 5, verse 20. Then the rulers of water and sky, again God speaks to create the creatures of water of this realm according to their different kinds, sea creatures, sky creatures, and God sees this as good and he says to them, be blessed, multiply, he directs them, he commands them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the sea and the sky, multiply again, multiply so you, you, you do what I command you to do, God says, and there's evening and morning and the fifth day. Day six, the rulers of the land. Again, God speaks. He creates living creatures according to the different kinds, beasts and livestock, creeping things. And here we notice, as he creates, he names them. He declares things to be good. And we notice that in this, the subject of the creation is him. Yes, there's beasts, perhaps they're wild animals. Yes, there's livestock, perhaps they're domesticated. Yes, there's creeping things, and perhaps they're the less liked ones, you know, the creepy ones that freak us out, the spiders and the snakes. But of all that, he remains the subject. He creates everything. Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. And again and again, God creates. He's the subject of creation. But then God does something extraordinary, like nothing before. Verse 26, God creates rulers in the image of God. It's God alone who creates. He is distinct and separate from his creation. Yet God is not far from his creation. He creates and sustains and interacts with creation in every measure of time in history. And here we see, in this period of time, 
God creates the pinnacle of his creation. He creates humanity, image bearers. The word Adam, Adam, means humanity. This is who God creates. He creates us. God says, verse 26, let us make man. Let us make humanity. Now, here's where this gets fascinating, a bit mind-bending and beautiful. Look at verse 26. Notice this. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Got to ask the question, right? Who is the our? Who's us? Is it other gods? No. Can't be other gods because it's just been God singular creating. Is it angels? Is God talking to the angels? No, because angels are just creatures. We should not look at them in any other way. In fact, in Revelation, book of Revelation, John, the Apostle John, who who more than any other apostle seems to get Jesus and he's quite measured. He's the one who gets the revelation from an angel, ends up worshipping the angel and the angel says, Stop it! Don't worship me. I'm just a creature like you. Worship God. Can't be an angel. Can't be angels God's talking to. Who is God talking to? Himself. Because God is triune. He is one God, three persons, always has been, before the beginning, always will be. Now, the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. And Muslims, our friends, three doors down, that we're going to share Jesus with as they settle into their new home. Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses who knock on our door, three doors down, or your door. Both of them make a lot of hay out of saying, oh, the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. As if it needed to. Because right from the beginning and all through, how do we see God reveal himself? As the triune God. One God, three persons. And notice, how does he make humanity? And we'll see this next week. He doesn't just make one person, he makes two. Because part of God being triune and making image bearers in his image is to make humanity relational. And he says here, let us make humanity in our image. Verse 27, male and female are made in the image of God. We're image bearers, we're precious, we matter to him. And then God does something different. See, every day of creation, God says, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good. But when when he makes humanity, notice what he says in verse 29. He says, that's very good. When the Bible uses the word very, it uses it sparingly. So when we read later on in Genesis that Sarai, Sarah was very beautiful, we should be reading that she's, she's extremely, like she's, in that, yeah, wow, beautiful. Very. When God says, good, 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 we go, yeah, good, good, good. And then he says, very good. This is very good. Humanity is created. It's a very good part and purpose of God's creation. And then God blesses humanity. Verse 28, we see five commands. Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue the earth. Have dominion over the earth. 
And this makes sense of our world. We are made to be image bearers of God. So what does that mean for us? It means what some people summarise as three R's. We are made to represent him here. We are made to rule under him. And we are made to be in relationship with one another. Rule, represent and in relationship. Now, of course, we see in a few weeks, we don't do that very well at all. Something went wrong. It's our fault, just in case you didn't know. But it's coming. But we were meant to. God's intention for his creation is he creates us, his creatures, to be image bearers, to rule, to represent and to relate to one another and to him. And it's a beautiful thing. We were designed to enjoy the world God gives us and designed to enjoy the God who made us. This is seen throughout Genesis 1. And it's got some important application for us at this point. This is why, friends, our lives matter. It's why your neighbours' lives matter. It's why our work matters. Whatever you do for work, be that paid work or volunteer work, is stewarding things, is stewarding God-given things, God-given money and resources and time. All that matters. How you do your work, whether you're doing the dishes or whether you're fixing a machine, it all matters how you do your work. Because God made all things. Often I talk to um, students in our church, ask how you're going, and kind of, well, this time of year has been kind of mid-year exams, Uni students say, oh, I hate being at uni. I hate studying. Look, I get it. We've got a club. We've got jackets. Not really, but, you know. I studied for most of my 20s. Right? So if you're going to hear a frightening story, I left the farm to go and get a, what I saw was a short education to get back to the farm as soon as possible. And then up there, and then someone said, you should study a bit more. Oh, well, I guess two years, three, three more years. It's fine. No worries. It's fine. Uh, do one more year of this. Okay, okay, whatever. And, and then do a ministry apprenticeship. Sure, it's only two years. And then I'll get back to the farm. And then go to more college of four years. Oh, that's a long time. Okay. And then go to the Prezi College on the two years. Sure, why not? Well, while we're already here. You know, like, I get it. I get it. But here's what I say. Your work matters. Your study matters. What is study? It's your job. If you're studying right now, see it as your job. You have the privilege of learning. And what do we study in God's world? We study God's world. A mechanic has to study how things orderly work. An engine will not work without being decently done and in order. A builder has to work in the principles that God gives, with gravity and all sorts of things I don't fully understand, that builders understand and somehow work things. We all work in God's world and your work matters, whether you study or work or do the dishes, because people matter. You love your neighbour, you serve them as fellow image bearers. Then as the creation of those six days we see given as God creates, God does something else. He rests. He doesn't create on the seventh day. He recreates. He rests. Day seven, and we see this, is for us to rest in relationship with God. This is why Chris read from chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, because 
The first episode of Genesis doesn't end at the end of chapter 1. It goes into chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, where God rests. After he finished all he had done, God rested on the seventh day from all his creating work. Creation's finished. There's no more kind of evolving, changing, however people want to read that into the text, which is just not there. The creation is complete. It's finished and God rests. And rest is not God taking a holiday. No, rest is all about relationship. Again, we'll see this in a couple of weeks because we live in a world that is not resting. Romans 8 shows us we live in a world that is groaning. We live in a world that is creaking and is sore and wounded and fallen from sin. We don't rest in this world naturally, which is why we're so restless. But we'll see God has a plan to rescue us from that. For now, though, see this. Why does God create you? Why do you and I exist? Why is all this here? It's so that we would rest in him that we would glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the design. That's the reason. That's why this exists. That's why you exist. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power For you created all things, and by your will they existed, and have their being. You and I exist because God created us to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. But friends, there's a problem. If we just left it at that, that wouldn't be the end of understanding Genesis 1. There's a problem. Because when you look at Genesis 1 to 2, 3, God creates everything and that's the reason he creates it. But the problem is, although we're designed to glorify him and enjoy him forever, we don't. We don't naturally. We can't give glory to God like we ought to. What is glory, by the way? When Queen Elizabeth died and there's been a change of rulers... There is around any queen or king a sense of glory. Glory is, is, is that sense of reputation, of, of prestige, of worthiness. The way human kings and queens display their glory is by big crowns and heavy robes. Sometimes robes designed with certain jewels that are meant to look like eyes. So they, this king or queen sees their whole empire that they survey and they get glory because of who they are. But that, that is like buying fairy floss when you want the real thing when it comes to God's glory. God's glory is magnificent because he made everything. He deserves all the glory. It's only natural that we give him glory, except we don't. Some of us want our own glory. 
be that likes on social media or just my reputation amongst friends. I want to be the smartest person in the room, smarter than you. I've worked it out. I got the big brain. I've worked out God, thanks. We steal glory so easily from God. We take glory from Him. We're not humble. We don't approach His word in humility. We're not humble towards others. We don't give God glory. The second problem is we don't enjoy Him. This is symptomatic for us all, for the world especially. But sometimes for Christians, you can see it. To enjoy God means you have a different posture towards one another, to others, to the world even. You can, you can actually face more of the world if you have your joy in the one who made the world. We don't glorify him, we don't enjoy him. And as we'll see in two chapters' time, we ask that age-old question, did God really speak this all into existence? Is God that powerful? Is it, is it real that I can enjoy him? What does it even mean? But Genesis 1 shows us the God who made us, the God we can glorify, the God we can enjoy. And any other explanation, any other humanistic explanation always falls short. Uh, some people say that one of the reasons that Genesis 1 is written, it's written in to the, the Babylonian myth period, and that's as possible. But whether this is written into Babylonian myth as a context, and that's why it's written that way, or however it's written, primarily it's written because God wrote it, because God made it, because God is the one who deserves all the glory. But even if you think, okay, well, there's the Babylonian myth. Now, what is the Babylonian myth? You probably, you may have heard of it, you can Google this later. But the idea is, in the day when this was first being read, there was this myth that how the world come into existence. It came into existence because all the gods had a kind of crazy big war. They're always fighting. They're not perfect. And in their crazy big war, out at the other end of the war, out of the kind of the, the kind of smoldering ruins of their war, out pops creation. And there's humanity and we're slaves of the gods. And that's kind of a Babylonian myth in summary form. The big point of that myth is creation comes out of chaos. It's chaotic. And then all of a sudden there's us. But isn't that the same big idea as evolution? There's just kind of unordered chaos. It just kind of happens. And then out pops the other end. Somehow this magical approach of intelligence and, and order and structure and meaning and purpose, but somehow it just comes out of this chaotic soup. You see, it's the same myth. But the same myths are saying the same thing. Oh no, God didn't make it, and he didn't make it this way with order. Friends, God made everything for him to get all glory for our all our joy. To enjoy him, to be in his presence. We read our cross-reference passage was from John chapter 1. And God, who sees now that we don't enjoy him, what does he do in John chapter 1? He comes into his creation. John 1, 
In the beginning was the Word, right there at the beginning. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Get this, Jesus is God and God in Christ comes into his creation so we can be rescued to glorify him and enjoy him forever. This is what the Bible calls the gospel. This is the good news. The whole Bible now from Genesis to Revelation is one picture of seeing God glorified again and enjoyed forever. It's God's plan, it's his purposes, it's his purpose for you. It's why you exist. So I'll ask you a question. Do you see Jesus as your God? Do you glorify him? Do you enjoy Jesus? Is your joy in Jesus, the God who made all, Colossians, our call to worship, the God who made all, but the God who comes to rescue all who turn to him? Do you have your joy in Jesus? Will you trust Jesus at his powerful word in Genesis 1? Will you find other things tempting to kind of, I just don't want to trust that bit. I find it's, it's some of the, no, no, Jesus is clear in his words in the New Testament, but he's clear also in Genesis 1. This is Jesus' word. And Jesus is saying to us, stop trying to find fulfillment in creation alone. You won't find your meaning just looking at the sunset. You'll find your meaning in the one who made the sunset, who came to redeem those who die under sunsets. Genesis 1 is the place to meet the God who made you. It conveys a historical account. And by the way, um, my original background is as a scientist, I studied agricultural science. A lot of science. The physics, beer hazy on. Chemistry, not my favourite. But a lot of science. And Genesis home is the pla- Genesis 1 is the home of science. It's the home of science. The reason we can have science is because of Genesis 1. The reason we can study the world is because of Genesis 1. We can study in our existence. We see this in the Psalms. Friends, you've just met the God who made you. You've met your Creator at His Word. And the first question for you and I, which will be the question going up to Genesis 3 is, do you believe it? Do you trust him at his word? Will you give him the glory? For us who do believe, for Christians who follow Christ, our Lord and God, we enjoy relationship with one who truly represents God, who truly rules, who truly relates as God. And where we fail at that, he comes in. He forgives us so we can delight in him. The word of God is to be taken as seriously as we trust him. And so here today, that's our prayer, that we would. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, you are worthy of all praise. May we give you praise by the way we live in your creation. But most of all, that we see that you lived in your creation. In Christ, you came to love us, heal us, restore us, most of all, die on the cross for us. That the one who made all things is the one who can and only can redeem all things. We thank you for Jesus, who is the full and final revelation of you, who is the creator, who is the saviour. We thank you and praise you that Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation, that by his raising from the dead, he gives a promise of hope for us all, who live and groan in this place, who long for before Eden, before the fall, who long for that time when relationship was enjoyed with you, but now see a time and experience a place that has fallen by sin. Father, we ask that we would trust you at your word, that we would glorify you as God and enjoy you as friend. In Jesus' name, this is our prayer. Amen.